Welcome to Tech on Reg, the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, technology, and high-regulated industry. We're talking fintech, regtech, sextech, and more with thought leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world to share insights, trade viewpoints, and get us all thinking about responsible innovation. And here is your host, Dara Tikowski. All right, everyone, back by popular demand. Today, we're taking a break from fintech and reg tech and the boring tech and revisiting a tech topic that affects each and every human being on the planet. That's right, folks, we are back to talk about sex tech, specifically the rise of sex tech, especially as we all sit in social isolation. Our guest today is instrumental in shaping the next generation of sex tech brands, Dominique Caretzos, CEO of the Healthy Pleasure Group. Welcome to the show, Dominique. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And what a beautiful introduction. So let me just add on to that when we say Emily Nagoski, which is a, a neuroscientist, said beautifully, there are as many sexualities as there are humans. Not one of us is the same. We all have the same bits. They are just uniquely designed for us. Oh, I like that. So Dominique, I'm going to fangirl on you a little bit here based <laughs> on all of my research. So for those of you listening at home, you know, sex tech is a topic that I promised we would explore here on Tech on Reg. And anyone who knows me knows I keep my promises. So we found Dominique because Dominique has a preference for working in disruptive industries. Her background is incredibly interesting and actually had some origination in the fintech world, if I'm not, yes, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> so it's no surprise that Dominique specialized in the EMEA growth for sex tech startups. She's an established marketing strategist, a brand architect, BBC radio broadcaster, and global business development professional with nearly two decades of experience delivering very high-level consultancy in a multi-sector business transformation. She's worked with major brands such as L'Oreal, luxury eyewear brand Cutler & Gross, MyCab, former head of sales for the EMEA Intimate for the world's leading intimate lifestyle company, Lilo Group. Shout out to Lilo. I am a fan and customer. (laughs) And she's launched and landed campaigns in over 40 markets. So I'm very grateful to have such an industry expert here with us today. And as we get started, Dominique, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about Healthy Pleasure Group. Well, let me put in a sentence. I always like to give my bar 30-second overview, and that is really we bring together the best of humanity and the best of technology for something that is innately human in us and that is the pursuit of pleasure. But what does our company do? We really close the trifecta between sex, health, and tech. In short, we understand that having a healthy sexuality is important as part of our holistic life chamber. It's, sex is not something that should be hidden away. It's something to be explored. It's something to be balanced. It's something to be experienced. And really what we did was we created the first sex tech agency. What does that mean? It's an end-to-end agency. We take startups from toilet paper entrepreneurs I've got an idea and it comes to me on a tissue paper and we take it to market. So anything from product development, business development, digital marketing, PR, all of it. We then extended that agency and created a healthy pleasure lab 
the only way to fast track this industry into its $126 billion industry is through innovation. As much as it is taking a product or innovation to market, like any other industry, just like the beauty industry, innovation will drive this industry into mainstream. So my business partner, Dr. Maria, Dr. Eduardo, both world-renowned neurologists and head of sexual medicine, we created an innovations lab. And in that lab, we do everything from consumer products to vulva masks for thrush and menopause to hoping to cure perineum disease to algorithms for the dating sites. And then we extended our ecosystem into an online and offline education platform called Entomology, which is basically the school of sexual wellness. And it invites people at any join, at any part of their sexual journey to come and discover healthy sexualities, whether that's learning the art of consent and boundaries to how to, in the month of May, masturbate, because it's masturbation month. This, I, I this did in May. May. Yes. Yes. Your slogan would be May, May has come and so should you, which oh is my gosh. on every Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> so your le- listeners are either putting up the volume, putting down the volume, <laughs> or going to highlight this podcast for later. But we are an ecosystem. Oh, it's okay. They knew that they knew what they were getting they into when they, when they clicked play on Apple Podcasts <laughs> today. So we truly are the only ecosystem that closes that trifecta between sex, health, and tech. And I have to make the claim, as I always do, the word and terminology for our industry called sex tech is something I both love and loathe, but it just, it didn't exist, you know, sort of eight to 10 years ago. So, but I understand that it has to be digestible for press and for industry and for channels. We need buzz. We need a buzzword. We need something cute. We need something short. We call Um, call ourselves sexual health and technology. So... Well, I will try to... No, you can call it sex tech. This is just my own personal opinion. (laughs) Well, you know, I like to learn from people within the industry and who are smarter about certain subjects than I am. So I'm I'm constantly learning. And if if I should be calling it sexual health and wellness technology, then that's what I'm going to start doing. (laughs) I would like to talk to you a little bit about sort of the the history of the industry, because I think you've got a, a very fascinating perspective. But picking up on one thing you mentioned like all industries that will either thrive or die as a result of their innovation efforts. One thing, you know, I'm always very focused on as an attorney, right, is the idea of sort of the regulatory and legal interplay between new and burgeoning industries of which sex tech slash sexual health and wellness technology is, Mm -hmm sort of how it interplays and how we make sure that we are innovating, but innovating responsibly and innovating in a way that is not going to get industries and brands and companies into trouble, particularly for those smaller startups who want to make a splash. So, you know, issues surrounding data privacy and making sure that they're compliant with all of the rules and the regulations that might touch, that even if the industry as a whole isn't regulated, but all of the laws and rules and regs that might touch their industry depending on what it is that they're doing. So we'll, we'll sort of get into some of those issues later. For now, why, why don't you tell me sort of, you mentioned that eight to 10 years ago, the term sex tech didn't even exist. What's happened in the past eight to 10 years? A lot. So I'll try and sum it up. But, you know, we were chatting earlier and I'd said to you, and, and it's still very much the same in many markets. So while we are making progress, when I say to you, this market previously was polarized, it is in, in many cases and in some cultures and in countries, it's the same. 
it's polarized. We have family planning on one end. You've all at one point gone in to buy your pregnancy test or a pack of condoms, maybe even some lubricant. And on the other end is porn. Now, we are not against porn, but we are against the fact that it's the only Bible of instructions. The script needs to change. And everything in between there has been ignored. If we look at it from a female perspective, historically, the needs of women for sexual health care, whether it's menstrual health, whether it's menopause, whether it's sexual health, have either been neglected, underserved, or politically controlled. So I'm not going to go into the political conversation, but there is this massive... That's, that's the subject of an that's entire all, yeah, exactly. other episode. Yes, I <laughs> There's agree. this massive void. And so what you found was, first we had... We've had in the background many advocates and ambassadors talking about healthy sexualities. But what really pushed it mainstream was, for example, the Me Too movement, brands moving in and press moving into the mainstream retail sector. You know, six, seven years ago, you couldn't walk into CVS or Walgreens and pick up a vibrator. Today, you can. Before, the press would not write about it. And and so we gave it a name, a digestible name called sex tech. So when technology became the, the sort of solar plexus in facilitating how sexuality can add value to a healthy life. So it became a digestible conversation, less about porn, less about family planning, and more about the technology. So we saw mainstream open up and you could walk into a store and potentially have a choice as a woman. However, most of our innovation and our brands have been sort of herded, shall I say, uh, onto a digital platform. Right. Because even though mainstream is there and it's changing, the landscape is changing. When we, like the likes of Healthy Pleasure, are trying to negotiate with you know, retailers to open up this vertical, to invest in this category, even just for, let's say, the audience of a female audiences, we have between North America and Europe, we host 65% of all decisions and we have 41% of the wallet. And yet we don't have choices when we walk for solutions in our cycles of life that we inevitably will go through. I mean, you were part of some of the initial disruption in that regard, right? I think we were talking earlier and you, and you had mentioned to me sort of anecdotally that when you, in one of your roles with, I think it was Lilo Group, and you were trying to sort of bring this education brand to mainstream retail, you got hung up on a lot. Oh, the, the conversation around a menstrual cup, I didn't think could get as heated as it possibly could, but it can. You've got co- cultural and social input. And whether we like it or not, and, and I don't like it, and I want to change it, when the other person across the table you're negotiating with cannot relate to the need of this product. And if he is a man, he cannot relate to the need of a menstrual cup. He cannot relate to the idea that a menstrual cup can give confidence to a young girl or a woman. And when a woman is confident, so her social and economic motives change in her life. That is, it is difficult. And, and reversely, you know, on the other side, we don't necessarily relate to something that a man would go through or someone who identifies as a man. However, Erectile dysfunction is a female's issue. Menstrual health is a man's issue. But it's I was about to say, isn't everything's always a female issue? We take that upon our, 
we take that upon ourselves, whether it is or we it do, isn't. We do, um, we do, we do. And so that, that area has moved. And, and when you see brands and innovation moving onto the digital landscape, that really lends into your conversation around data protection. We have a lot of blockers in the digital space, you know, the likes of, of social medias, and we can't use words like pleasure. We can't use words like sex, and it's, it's sex or sex care or safe sex. But being placed onto that platform to be able to sell your products or sell your solutions is the, the good part about that is the regulatory systems have forced brands to be ethically and morally compliant with other spaces in this industry. For example, let's call it materials, let's say medical grade silicone right? Most vibrators today are made out of medical grade silicone. 10 years ago, Rambit Rabbit was PVC. And women and men want to know what's going in their bodies. They don't want a toxic material like PVC. Certainly. However, we are not ISO regulated. We are not a regulated industry from a material standpoint. We are also not a regulated industry when it comes to claims and marketing claims. And we have an ethical duty as an industry to bring about promises to the market that doesn't label people. For example, if you are a vibrator and you are promising an orgasm in 90 seconds, one, you can't prove it. Two, you are not regulated. You can say what you want. <laughs> we are trying to dismantle the taboo around performance being the only thing that defines masculinity and an orgasm that defines whether or not a woman is satisfied or not. We don't need added pressure that if we can't do it in 90 seconds, then we're failures. So we have to think of the labels. Instead of creating labels, we really have to reshape the language. And data plays a big part in that. Reshaping the language, how we talk about sexuality, how brands ethically and morally really create a language that resonates with people. So right now, do you feel as though from an industry perspective, it's because, as you say, you're not sort of regulated as an industry as a whole, brands are forced to sort of self-regulate. Is there any sort of collective or consensus or like industry group sort of pushing that forward? There is. A case for her is a, is a good one in Sweden and they're working, they both work in the US and in Europe and they're trying. It's, it's not a one solid body. Like for example, let's take cosmetics, maybe it's Soil Association here sure. in, in Europe. There's no one singular body. So yes, it is being regulated, but it's not being regulated like we, sh- we should be able to see it. It's something we're all working towards. And I think, again, there's many blurred areas. We're trying to close this trifecta between sex, health, and tech. So, for example, health devices, app devices, we have regulations in Europe coming out with the MDR, but they are not completely solid. They are gray. So when you have new innovation, whether it's data, whether it's private data, whether it's medical data, we have to really future-proof, right, what we're going to look like in anticipation of what this regulation is going to look like. So we're, we're nowhere near where we should be at the moment. Well, it's interesting. I think right now what's happening in the industry from an outsider's perspective. Mm-hmm. So while I have, a, I have an interest and I have an appreciation for sort of the laws and rules and regulations, I'm not living and breathing it day to day as you are. So 
But even from what I can see, it's already clear that sort of digital sex tech companies ranging from education platforms to wellness apps, online toy shops have have seen a real surge sort of in sales and clicks and downloads over the past two months when, you know, those of us fortunate enough to stay isolated on the planet as we sort of deal with the coronavirus pandemic, the industry's had a little bit of a bump, uh, mm-hmm. a boost, and an upward, upward trajectory. I think it was over 30% annual growth year after year in 2019, and there's noticeable extra activity that I think we can probably link directly to sort of the you know unprecedented pandemic-related isolation mm-hmm. and quarantine mm-hmm. situations that we've all sort of forced to be in. I know you were recently quoted in an article regarding the boom of EU sex tech startups. I'm going to quote you to yourself. Isn't (laughs) isn't that cute? That's what we're going to do right now. That the age-old adage that sex is recession-proof is not us as an industry boasting that we can literally ride out anything, but evidence that this is where you should be investing right now. Tell us what you are seeing from an investment standpoint. Well... First of all, sex tech is recession-proof. I'm happy to be proven wrong. So go ahead and anyone else prove me wrong. We've been around for centuries. We're not going anywhere. (laughs) It's how we got here in the first place. So when it comes to investment, it's very interesting because prior to COVID-19, we know that innovation, that education and investment are three catapults in taking and grow and fast-tracking our industry. Investment as such, as female founders irrespective of the category or industry we sit in, we see very little of that investment fund. Sex tech or sexual health technology probably sees 0.002% of that. What you find, though, is during the COVID, first of all, like you so rightfully said, we don't dismiss or, you know, we take the time to appreciate and understand that the loss that everyone's had and that we have the privilege to have a home, to be in our home, to self-isolate, to maybe even work from home. There's a lot of us who have that privilege. And it's those who have that privilege that for the first time ever, we have life giving us permission to slow down, to drop gears in life. And there's a lot of speak and encouragement about self-care. And for the, in the safety of your home, you now have social permission to include sex care in your self-care. So whatever that looks like, whether it's you're solo, whether it's in you're in a partner, maybe you're a gentleman that experiences premature ejaculation, maybe you're a woman that's going through menopause. Often what happens is our sexual health is sidelined. It's a thing to do on our to-do list that is usually at the bottom of the list, yet it influences how we move through this world, how we have our relationships, how we function as human beings. Being able to drop down in gears, being able to be given the time, as well as being given education and products and solutions online. So in a case of London, for example, if I was going to look up a solution for premature ejaculation, chances are I'm not going to do it on the tube while every man in his left nostril behind me can see what I'm looking at. So now, so now I have the opportunity to investigate. I have the opportunity to, for example, my Hexel is an incredible brand that offers online consultation with a urologist for learning how to control your climax. Maybe it's an intimacy course that maybe my partner and I want to instill desire in a 30-year-old marriage that really needs it. So we've been given the time 
We've been given the social permission, which we've never had before. And now we've been given the resources to be able to look for those products and solutions. And so, yes, you're very right. A lot of our clients and a lot of our brands have seen anything from, you know, 3X to 5X. What does this mean for investment? Well, if everything else tanked <laughs> and, and you're pulling your money and you want to be able to, people are going, where am I going to invest my money? And all of a sudden, this veil has been uplifted. We're not having to uh, compete against multiple verticals, whether it's fintech, whether it's you know property development. Now, all of a sudden, we're saying, well, hang on a moment. This is sexual health tech. This is maybe a mobile device that is helping men deal with erectile dysfunction. Maybe this is a solution for night sweats for women who are going through menopause. Maybe it's a toy that's going to bring in a lot of desire to most human beings who, need, who want desire and eroticism back in their life. So it's an opportunity to really understand the market. It's not as noisy. We get an opportunity to explain it. And investors if they're not attached to the vice within their portfolio, so many VCs would consider, for example, a, a sex vi a toy or a vibrator vice, but a product with a gamification app as a health device, something that they could invest in. So it really has opened up dialogue and conversation. Can I say that there's been many deals closed and copious amounts invested? Not yet. We're not, we're not really seeing that, but we are seeing more conversations. And we're seeing it with clarity and dedication. So I'm hoping it's going to yield some really positive results. Do you think that that will be sort of related directly into sort of how long the planet is sort of experiencing what they're experiencing? Or, you know, when, I don't know, you know, when things ever get back to normal, normal, I despise the phrase new normal, by the yeah, way. Yeah. I, think if I, I think if I hear it one more time, I'm going sure. I'm, I'm to sure. scream. But if things get back to something that is more familiar, people mm -hmm. get back to work, people leave their homes, people get back on airplanes, masks and all, do you think that that will sort of drop off and the conversations might, Peter? Or do you think sort of the cat's out of the bag, this is, you know, the conversations are going to continue and hopefully 2020 will be maybe mm -hmm. hopefully a record year. I think, I think some conversations will definitely even get louder. I think some will continue. So as far as investments concerned, absolutely. Yes. I think the, the topic of health and the topic of how do I disclose my health profile and how we mobilize economies across international borders is a massive topic. So for example, we have a brand that is the new sexual transmitted infection, STI, home testing and sharing technology, whereby you share your verified healthy sexual status, right? Now, how do we verify a healthy status of corona-free in order for us to mobilize through the world, never mind across borders, never mind to just decide if you're going to kiss someone or make love to someone or have sex with someone. So the question about disclosing our health is a big topic. And I think sexual health and health and digital apps and how we, how we do that is, is going to be something we're talking about for a long time. How we feel about tracing and tracking that type of thing and how sexual health plays a part in that. Well, it's interesting. It how we feel about it may not, may not matter so much as how mm. our governments feel about it. You know, I see so many different workarounds for lack. Uh, that's a polite term. We'll call yeah. them workarounds. I have an impolite term, but <laughs> I don't, I don't want my content to be flagged by Apple. So 
the notion that, you know, some of the largest technology players in the world are being tapped by regulators and governments to sort of, to track us for all the right reasons. They want to know who's sick and they want to know how to trace it and they want to know how to contain a problem. But at the same time, it's going to happen with or without our consent right now. Mm -hmm. So some of us are going to think that's a great idea and others of us are going to be sort of up in arms about it, about our, our, our freedoms. But what's interesting is that you know, I think I was reading another article that you were quoted. You're quoted very often, <laughs> but uh, a company called iPlaySafe was, I noted, an application that allows users to test, track, and share sexual health status, sort of as you were mentioning. So, you know, obviously, if I care about my partner, mm-hmm. potential future partner's status enough that I want to log on and share that information certainly COVID is going to be just as significant, if not Mm -hmm. more significant than whether or not someone is carrying, you know, frankly, an STD that can be cured with an antibiotic. Absolutely. Um, You know, yeah. I mean, chlamydia, it's two tablets and you're absolutely right. Um, So iPlaySafe is quite revolutionary in that, in combining the two together and really seeing a bigger picture. You know, four months ago, if I had said safe and sex, you lose your audience. If I had said Let's talk about disclosing your health. And I use inverted commas status, although we don't like to use the word status. People don't want to talk about it. It's a taboo. It's shrouded in a lot of shame. Now, all of a sudden, as you say, not only is it potentially going to be controlled by governments, but you have to opt in in the way you think about your sexual health and your health and how much of it you want to control sharing it so that you can continue in your daily life. And in that regard, it's a huge positive for us because it is totally normal and part of your well-being to consider, you know, testing yourself and sexual health tests as part of your daily or your, 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 your ethos around your sexuality. So, and it helps us dismantle those taboo and that shame. So in our instance, this is where COVID has added a light of positivity for us. Well, it's, you Assuming guys have, we're not all chipped in the neck while we have to cross borders then. Yeah, you know, fing, <laughs> fing, fing, fingers crossed. We're all going to, you know, I'm going to sleep with one eye open now. Um, but in, in that respect, sort of these applications can really become sort of the benchmark for mm-hmm. what maybe the yeah. world is seeking to do or needs to do. And truth be told, I think the rules have also changed from, from a legal perspective as well. I'm an employer. You're an employer. Never in any other situation would we expect our employees to share personal health information with us sure. about them. In, in fact, we've been forbidden from asking from, it's none of our business. It can't affect the way that we treat our employees or pay our employees or accommodations that, you know, that we need to make. But now employers are entitled to know mm-hmm. if someone's mm-hmm. received you know, a, a positive COVID-19 diagnosis. Employers here in the U.S. are allowed to take their employees' temperatures when they walk into the office. And really in an instant, the rules around Mm -hmm. disclosure and accessing that data and not even the right to disclose, but also the right to ask has also sort of materially changed literally in 60 to 90 days, which is a massive change in behavior, massive change in behavior, and then change in the laws regulating that Mm -hmm. behavior as well. So I think in a lot of ways, maybe some of these applications and the work that the sex tech industry has been doing, particularly around sexual health and wellness mm-hmm. in that data sharing, really could become a nice roadmap. Yeah. For- well, we, have, we have an opportunity to, you know, sort of positively shape 
this narrative, right? So that we can normalize these conversations because things like HIV and coronavirus, it's it's all normal to, you know, to be able to talk about it, to be able to be treated. It's nothing that needs to be shrouded and just it's the scaffolding and scaffolding of shame. And we really need to dismantle it. And hopefully we have an opportunity to really powerfully and empoweringly positive, I don't even know if that's a word, but positively impact, you know, how this narrative and dialogue is going to play out. And I see a lot of brands being able to do that. Ultimately, what we're wanting to do is create really a smart internet of sexual health. And Corona now fits into one of that. And it's, you don't even have to have sex to get Corona. So, No, apparently you just need to be less than six feet away yes. from, from somebody. Even, even that I question, even that I question. And I, um, you know, I don't, I don't for one minute believe that everybody has the answers to exactly what this is going to look like. And you asked right in the, in the beginning of this question, how we as, as humans might sort of continue to move through this world. And, you know, I, I think if we look at, at historically, when we look at tragedies, there's a large portion of us on an individual perspective that we change our life, right? Things like loss and grief can make you rethink the way you want to move through the world. There's also regrettably a large portion of us that become sort of desensitized, fatigued, shall I say, about the convert, corona fatigued, and through numbness and survival, we'll move on like this has never happened. And I think there is a portion, we, we need to know that there's a part of this world that may very well work, you know, continue to move forward just like that. I'm not saying it's how we want it, but we would be remiss to think that the world oh, of course. become a perfect place, unfortunately. Um, you know, every, every, every human on the planet sort of manages and copes differently mm-hmm. in any sort of, you know, tragedy or situation, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a parent. And in the case of many people here, the loss of their lifestyle. Yeah. And that's, you know, that is up to everyone to sort of deal with and, and manage. But knowing that everyone is sort of dealing with the same issues together, even though they're dealing with them differently. Mm-hmm. So one thing you mentioned is that you really think that sex tech is, there's a massive opportunity for sex tech right now to sort of be part of the conversation. You know, COVID in a lot of ways has sort of forced the issue front and center where frank conversations are being had, which is great. But innovation also rarely comes necessarily from, you know, the, the big players, big, mm-hmm. you know, big players, big corporates have innovation groups. They do a lot of innovating, but it's the startup community, right? That really mm-hmm. forces a lot of the questions. That's what we saw in fintech, you know, all of those years ago and why banking looks materially different today yeah. than it did, you know, in 2008. So in order to do that, though, startups need funding. Oh, Yeah. And even though maybe the, the private investment conversations are taking a turn and we may see more private investment, lots of other businesses on the planet are getting assistance from their governments yeah. in how to manage and sort of navigate through the economic impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. And a lot of sex tech companies have been either consciously or unconsciously excluded Mm -hmm. from a lot of that support and a lot of that aid. Some of it has to do with 
I think, societal and social opinions that still sort of permeate a lot of the legal framework. Um, I know that's true in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I'm sort of interested to know sort of what you see happening in the EU. I know we here in the United States, between the SBA programs, the Paycheck Protection Act funding that was made available under the CARES Act, businesses that are quote-unquote prurient in nature are being denied aid under those programs. For example, if it's a business that sells a product that depicts an, an adult image based on some likely outdated definition of what the word adult means, and then the implicit, you know, explanation that adult equals bad and adult equals sure. negative on something that <laughs> and something that we shouldn't be funding or supporting. So while other businesses, as difficult as it is for any business to get their hands on those funds. So I don't want to I don't want to be insensitive. It's been difficult for any business. I'm using air quotes for listeners who, you know, can't see me. <laughs> for a business that's prurient or not, it's been difficult to get those funds. But there's been an entire industry that's been completely gated out of it sure. for seemingly no reason other than sort of the, the taboo, right? It's a vice, yeah. it's a taboo, it's some other negative word that you know, we're going to, we're going to assign way. to it. Yeah, yeah it's, it's dirty, it's mm-hmm. bad. We think that what you do is akin to being you know, a, a sex worker and we're going to mm-hmm. not only judge you as a human, but we're going to judge yeah. your, your business as well. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of what we're seeing here in the US. What are, what are you seeing over in Europe? Well, I have to say globally, first of all, there's two parts to this question. The first is globally, categorically, sex tech has been excluded from funding nine out of 10 times for that very reason that you brought up. It's, it's taboo and it's shrouded in both cultural, political and social and economic constructs, right? So in some countries, it's illegal. In some countries, it's culturally or religiously completely against everyone. For some, I have a special place in hell, no doubt. So categorically, we've well, always you and, been... you and you and me both, Dominique. <laughs> yeah. It'll be you and me both. So categorically, we've always been excluded. And what has happened is the the portfolio of innovation is now very broad. It's no longer just, you know, Pornhub. It may be a version of, so for example, there's a brand called in the US Dipsy and one in the in Europe called Fantasy, which is female audio porn. People listening, it is people whispering, right? It's whispering that is an erotic arousal sensory to listen to, but it is classified as vice and therefore categorically would not get any investment from VC. 90% of all investment in sex tech sits within private equity, angel investors, and really those bigger deals is usually working with a product for like a pelvic therapy product that is sitting in the blurred lines. People like to, ca- there's health. a little hub it's of health. us. Yeah, there's a little hub of us that, that like to call it femtech. And so they want to be disassociated sometimes with the sex tech. If it's between the belly button and the knees, it's sex tech, people. So um, <laughs> I'm going you know, to adopt that as my own. You should just, you should just know that. I'm going, okay, if it's between fine. the belly button and the knees, got it. It's sex tech. But with COVID, what's happened on this side of town is our funds have really been set set up for failure. It's actually got nothing to do with the category, but rather we want to question what is the definition of a startup, a scale-up these days? You know, criteria is 
ludicrous at the very least. While there are smaller funds within the hospitality industry, within the retail industry, they are seeing grants that are coming through, which is, you know, and obviously people being furloughed, seeing 80%, for example, in the UK of their salary being paid. For the freelancers, there is some coverage and support there. But for the startups and scale-ups, there is criteria, for instance, you have to have 250000 investment committed already you have to whatever further investment you ask from the fund you have to have that doubled up and committed by another investor you have to be post-revenue not pre-revenue now as we work through this and since i have worked with startups for 20 years if you have a quarter of a million and a whole lot of other investors lined up chances are i don't want to take it from the fund at a really ridiculous amount of equity that i have to give away or maybe you know commit interest or loan and also, there's a lot of work that goes into fundraising and investment. For me then to garner all of that up, only then to hand over to ask you for more money to give you more of my equity away, you're setting us up for failure before we've even started. Not it, to mention, it also, it seems post-revenue... Yeah, it seems economically irrational. It's just, it, it, well, it is irrational. And really what you find then is these early stage startups or these startups that may be post-revenue but not making nearly even, uh, you know, 10% of that are completely sidelined. And so the bigger brands are coming in, being able to match that criteria, you know, already. Easily. Very easily. And then there's no more money left in the fund. So I have to say the starting point, the criteria, and I, and I do believe that globally we need to reassess what startup means, what scale-up means. I think those, it's a very gray area and in many stages it's very blurred. There, you know, we have startups that are still classified as startups, but they're already past the million revenue and four years in. So are they a startup because they're fundraising? <laughs> you know, I think we need to relook at that and... Um, I don't think that's been one of the things on the to-do list in and amongst the corona crisis. No, I think that's probably right. So we're sort of nearing the end of our time. And my last question for you is going to be, if there was one thing about the industry or the future of the industry that you wanted to leave listeners with, now's your opportunity. That's a lovely statement. So I'm going it's to It's a tough it one. This. I got gotcha. no, you. I like it. I like it when I I like it when I can I like it when I can do that. <laughs> it wasn't one of those stealth pregnant pauses, but I will leave with this. We as human beings, we are not taught the innate value that pleasure brings to our life. Biologically, physiologically, mentally, how we move through the world. So really what we're going through in this century is a pleasure famine. And it's not all about an orgasm gap that we need to close. I would like an opportunity where individuals learn how to carve a safe space in their life for their sexualities. And specifically for women, a woman who has self-efficacy and understands her sexuality, this becomes the indication for equality. It's beautifully said. Well, I very much look forward to seeing sort of the work that you continue to do with all of the sort of groundbreaking companies and brands that you get to work with. So please keep us informed. We would love to have you back. And as always, my focus here is innovation forward, certainly innovation in sex tech and doing so responsibly within the rules, within the regulation and making sure that all of our privacy concerns and, you know, even in an industry that remains unregulated, sounds like is making strides towards self-regulation to making sure that 
all of the amazing work that's being done is being done in a moral and ethically responsible way. So thank you for all of your efforts in that regard. And it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us from across the pond. And thanks for giving us a platform to talk about it. Because without you, we wouldn't be able to shout out about it. So thank you very much. Absolutely. You hear that, listeners? Right here on Tech on Reg, we are changing (laughs) narratives. We are changing dialogues. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Everyone at home, continue to stay safe. Keep washing your hands and we'll talk soon. 